You're listening to Conversations at the Cohen Center, a space for intellectual engagement, interdisciplinary collaboration, and a vibrant graduate community at James Madison University. Welcome to Conversations at the Cohen Center. I'm Becca, and today I'm speaking with Professor Graham Welsh and Dr. Adam Ockelford, JMU Visiting Scholars and Madison Music Scholar recipients. Professor Graham Welsh holds the University College London Institute of Education Established Chair of Music Education. In his research, Welch embraces musical development and music education, teacher education, the psychology of music, singing and voice science, and music and special education and disability. Dr. Adam Ockelford is Professor of Music and Director of the Applied Music Research Center at the University of Roehampton, London, founder of the Amber Trust, a charity that supports visually impaired children in their pursuit of music. Dr. Ockelford studies music psychology, education, theory, and aesthetics, particularly special educational needs and exceptional abilities, cognition of musical structure, and the construction of musical meaning, and music in the early years. So, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. My pleasure. All right. So first off, if you guys could just tell me a little bit about your work individually and your work together and about yourselves. Yep. So um, I work at the University of Roehampton in London in the UK, and I run the Applied Music Research Centre. So what that means is we look at ways in which music can help people in their everyday lives. So particular focus on children with special educational needs or special abilities. Um, For example, I do a lot of work with autistic children, with children with visual impairments, and children with complex needs. And I've done that for many years. I've been working in the field for about 40 years, and it's been a fascinating journey in that time to see how, just how attitudes to disability and ability have changed, how musicians' attitudes to working uh, in the community have changed, and how educational um, attitudes have also developed in that time. For example, 40 years ago, children with the most profound disabilities weren't even regarded as being educable. And now it's a, it's a basic recognised uh, as a basic right that all children, no matter what their abilities or needs are, are certainly educable and are worthy of education. I think music's a particularly fascinating area to work in in this field, because music seems to be one of those things that no matter what your abilities or interests or needs are, um, music seems to be a common factor in all of us. The human brain is just designed to understand music, to make music, and to respond to music. And um, even children with the most profound disabilities do seem to have um, a reaction to music. I was working in a school last year um, for children with really very, very profound needs who seem to make little or no what you might call bedside response. Um, and yet all of them in the course of a year or so uh, did react at some level to music. And we know also from research with people in um, low awareness states, for example, people who haven't responded for a long time, years sometimes to family or to doctors, um, when you put them in an FR- fMRI scanner, Um, and play music, in half of the cases, the brain starts to light up. So I think the reason for that is that music developed in us as a species 
many hundreds of thousands of years ago, before language even. And so music really is embedded in some of the earliest parts of our neural circuitry, which means it's incredibly powerful because music is linked to the language centres in the brain, for example, the movement centres, the social centres. All these things are part and parcel of making music. And it means as educators we can use music not only for its own sake, because it's great fun, but also to help children develop in these other areas. <laughs> Hi, yes, and I would endorse all of those comments. My name is uh, Professor Graham Welsh and I am Chair of Music Education at UCL's University College of London uh, Institute of Education, where I and my colleagues uh, both teach uh, and research and work with uh, other researchers across the spectrum, really. Uh, education and uh, music education is, uh, I suppose, the best way of thinking about it is, is that it's a, an applied social science in, in terms of an art form. And both of these things are uh, somewhat contested. I, what counts as education? How do we know that someone is educated? What do we do about it? And at the same time, uh, what counts as music? Uh, what makes this set of sounds musical? And because a lot of that relates to, as Adam said, the design of the human brain, that we are programmed, we're designed to, to create detect order, impose order on disorder. The brain is a wonderful pattern detecting mechanism. It will create a pattern even if someone else may not discern that. And so our interest is in, well, how do kids process this, both in, in uh, a kind of mainstream, if you like, settings, both preschool, in, at home, in the families, as well as uh, within the school system or in, in community settings. What counts as effective learning? And in researching that, as Adam says, we discovered that there are, because music is so multi-sided in the brain, that there are many other possibilities that music, through music, you can touch perhaps something else. And although we've been researching this for almost 20 years now, it's still very early in trying to make sense of that, of how we might use this human design and fascination with sound, the thing that we're doing now is a fascination with sound, um, and use that in some way to support uh, children and young people, for example, that have other kinds of needs, whether uh, in the field of speech, language, communication, whether it's to do with movement, motor behaviour, development of fine motor skills, whether it's the development of uh, social or more pro-social behaviours. One of the things we've been looking at uh, recently, for example, is, is aspects of executive function in young children and music. Executive function in the sense of, can I pay attention to particular features of something and ignore others, which is kind of fairly critical as we go through life, to not be constantly distracted. And uh, it's interesting that the, the research that's emerging is, yes, music the organisation of sound playing with sound can actually help some of those things. But it's also showing up what we don't know, that the tools that we have really are often inadequate for the kinds of questions that we want to ask and the answers that we're seeking. So Adam and I have been collaborating since we were much younger, you know, <laughs> the last two decades or more now, 
on mapping what might count as musical behaviour and development in particular populations, both what we might call neurotypical and also more neurodiverse populations. Because in particular, we think that if we can understand where, where we started, we think if we can understand those with the most complex needs that need the most care, if they're able to respond to music in some way and to develop musically in some way, then what does that imply for what we should be doing with everybody else? Not that it has to be. I mean, we're still going to give people options. We're not necessarily making everything compulsory yet. Although I think if we had some say in it as policymakers, we would certainly encourage all policymakers to put more effort into the arts, um, particularly into music. Because it is, as Adam said, so multi-sided in the brain. It touches so many other parts of the human condition from pre-birth onwards that we're hardwired to make sense of music. And our research suggests that if we can find the right context and the right pedagogical approaches as educators, then we can facilitate this development and enrich uh, children and young people's lives. And at the other end of the spectrum, some of our colleagues are, are working with older adults that uh, are also neurologically challenged, perhaps because they've had an accident or it's been a stroke or something like that, or it's some long-term deterioration in uh, mental function. And in all of these cases, we're actually seeing that it is possible to do something, particularly in the early stages when the situation is less acute. You know, there's some wonderful research going on around the world of how music can make a difference in some way. And not least because it's, it's, uh, it's something that tends to make people, by and large, smile. You know, that people like hearing their sounds, their special sounds. One of our colleagues, for example, has done research on, uh, our, on the perception of pain, perception of discomfort, and the crazy things that music psychologists do. And that if you're listening to your favourite music, or music that you really like, and you zone out into that space, then your perception of pain and discomfort is much less. You know, quite um, odd the way that the brain pays attention to sound in this way, so hardwired into it. And for us, it's, it's been a, a, a lifelong, ongoing, you have to say, because we're quite young, really. Um, <laughs> you don't know how long your life is, Graham. <laughs> <laughs> So you guys are both highly respected in your fields. You've been doing this for many, many years. But how did you get into this field? Like, when did you first start realizing that you wanted to do this for a career? Sure. I was um, a music student in London at the Royal Academy of Music. And just by chance, my landlady's son worked at a school for the blind. And he said, you must come and see these kids. It was a boarding school. So he said, just come along in the evenings and listen to them making music, engage with them. And, um, you know, I wasn't keen to get um, hooked into a volunteering situation too much. And, and guess what? 40 years later, I'm still volunteering at the same school. Anyway. That's how they get you. That's how they get you. Um, I knew what would happen. And it has. But it was the most um, amazing, transformative experience. Because here were young children who, many of whom had what we'd now call um, autism spectrum condition. Um, but in those days, we just thought they were a bit quirky. The, the children and the common denominator was that they all lived for sound and music they, they for them it was a natural language they couldn't read music they couldn't read music in braille or in large print 
but they could hear my goodness they could hear you know they when they had a band play they could hear what all the instruments were playing they could then go on to say the piano and reproduce that we'd go and do concerts in um, homes for senior citizens and um you know, if the piano was a semitone flat or something, they just transpose into the right key. I mean, here were natural musicians that thought nothing of their skills, and yet they had abilities that music students at a conservatoire didn't have. And so clearly they were doing something profoundly right that traditional music education wasn't very often doing. And really, I think it, that was part of my journey of exploration, of trying to figure out why why could they do this so effectively? What was it? Why were their brains wiring themselves up in a what seemed to be a more musical way than most people? And I think that was my first um, journey into music psychology, as we now call it. Music in the brain, how does music in the mind, how does that work? And it was at the school for the blind, Linden Lodge School, um, that I first met Graham, who I think was researching the images that blind children have when they listen to sounds. And that was because uh, one of my colleagues... Uh, his doctoral thesis many years ago was about the images that we might create in our minds as we're listening to different changes in music, whether it's to do with pitch, which tends to be images of, of sound going up and down, or whether it's to do with loudness, which relates to like the size of an object. So something that's very quiet, we draw very small, and if it was a big bang, then we'd draw it much bigger, for example. Um, and he did a little bit of research with uh, uh, an older a visually impaired population in Vancouver, where he was working at the time, which I came across. And I was fascinated as to whether this would apply with children. And so um, I discovered Adam uh, working around the corner from where I was working. And he also had a wonderful art colleague who suggested to me that uh, one of the ways that we might have a tool for understanding what the kids were doing in terms of sound was using something called German film which is rather like when you have an elastoplast and you take the bit off the back and throw it away. Well, that's the bit you keep. And, and this came in kind of large sheets that she, she let me have. And it has this extraordinary property that if you draw it, if you make a mark on it, uh, a bump is raised. And the harder you press, the bigger the bump. So you end up with a mountain range or a little hilly or whatever. And so I, I worked with Adam on using this with uh, his pupils, on playing them this battery of sounds of different pitches and timbres and, and loudness um, to see how they responded. For them, however they wanted to respond, they could feel their response because they couldn't see. So you and I, we would see we'd drawn something small or we'd move the pen upwards or whatever. And the fascinating thing was that their images were as if they could see. And they were just chatting to me as well. They would tell me that they had favourite colours. Oh, my favourite colour is yellow. Think, oh, really? You know. And you suddenly, you were entering a world which was the same yet different. And as Adam says, when you first encounter it, it's, it's just fascinating as to what these children can do, not what they can't do. The fact that they can't see either very well or at all seems to be somewhat irrelevant because they see feel, experience the world differently. And that we've used to give us an insight, if you like, to everybody else. I suppose my journey, where did that start? Well, I come from a large uh, working class family. Uh, my father had 12 brothers and sisters who were born in the East End of London. And so whenever we had family events when I was a kid, 
there'd be about like you know 50 cousins or whatever you know we'd have to take over some large space for a family wedding or a big boat or something or other and there was always music people were always singing you know um, they weren't singing in any professional sense but they were singing whatever the popular music was at the time and my earliest memories of Christmases was that I would have to go up to what was called the front room which was in our apartment as we would call it these days was rather um, a large space that was only used for special occasions and I'd have to help my father roll the carpet up because that night, you know, Christmas night, the world and his friend, all the relatives, would be arriving in a space where everybody had about a, a few square inches of space if they were upright, and they'd start dancing. You know, my my job was to put these old seventy eights you know, on the radiogram, which was the size of a small house, and make sure that my grandmother's uh, gin and tonic was kind of filled up. And so my experience was of growing up where people made use of lived through having lived through the war not me but my, my parents I was born just after the war of, of music being a communal activity where you danced and you sang and uh, I mean we actually we had a television we had a nine inch television black and white television and when the uh, coronation happened in 1953 uh, the world and his friend on our street all came in to our kitchen to watch the coronation. This tiny, tiny little thing, you know. Um, so my father liked technology, hence the, the radiogram and all these old 78s. But it was a sense that people just made music. They didn't think, am I musical, not musical? And so I grew up, if you like, in that working class culture of people making music. I went to the local church primary school because it was a church in England primary school. The expectation was that you sang. And we had a wonderful, strange character, uh, the local vicar. Uh, I think his name was John Pierce Higgins, who was slightly larger than life, twice the size of larger than life, who come in and hit the piano as if he really hated it. Very hard, very loud and very fast. You know. <laughs> <clears throat> and we'd all uh, be like 150 kids sitting in the school hall expected to sing along with this you know it was just again part of the culture and then when I was about 10 he came to recruit children for the local church choir and I and, and uh, another lad suddenly got sucked into this suddenly into that whole world and here I am what 50 plus years later of education finding myself still talking and researching, for example, singing and singing development across the lifespan. But because of those early experiences to do with the voice and singing and because of school and the local church, and you realise that the, the experience that you've had, the buzz that you got out of it, that some other people don't have or haven't experienced it. I can remember when I first be, um, became an undergraduate student, again, a kind of accident, really, and... Um, uh, to become a primary school teacher, elementary school teacher. And it, one of the first people I came across was a, a, a music guy called Charles Cleal, who'd just done some research on singing. And I can remember him saying to me that, that the reason that people don't sing is because part people think they can't. And in our class of, of students, there were several there that couldn't sing, wouldn't sing, wouldn't dream of singing in front of everybody else. And he said, who can't sing? So one or two hands went up. And so he went over, sat next to them and asked them 
to say their name. And they just, just say your name out loud. And they responded by saying their name. And he, as a musician, picked up the pitch and sang their name back to them and said, now just copy me. And instantly they started, I can still see this on a Tuesday morning, half past nine, one of these young women started singing and it was as if the sun had come out. Suddenly it was one of those light bulbs. She'd never heard her singing voice and he just encouraged us to suddenly produce a singing voice, which for her as an adult was the first time. And I just sat there gobsmacked because I assumed because I'd always sung and brought up in this, that family environment, people sang or they didn't. It was a kind of sheep and goats thing. You know, well, I'm a singer. And they don't, perhaps because they can't or whatever. And this moment, I can, I can see it in my mind now as if it was yesterday. And this was 1968, early 1968. So that's a few years ago. All right, Neil Armstrong. Right? Just a few. <laughs> yeah, just a few years ago. And I, but I can see it now, the change that that made to that fellow student, that young woman. And I thought, wow. And as a primary school teacher, I, that was then my philosophy. If you find it difficult, if you think you can't, that's up to me to find a way. Not to accept it, but to find some way with it. And that's really our, our whole journey together has been about finding ways and just all the time being amazed. People assume because we're a somewhat aged and somewhat experienced and we're called professors that we know things. But as we've got older, we realise, in fact, what we don't know, that's part of this journey and how amazing the human condition is and, and the role of music in it. It's beautiful. So since then, what have you worked on together? It sounds like that was the, be the beginning of a very illustrious partnership. <laughs> yeah, I think um, around the year 2000, around the turn of the century, um, we were talking and thinking um, of all the children we'd come across, what was the most needy group? And really it was those young people who were coming into education for the first time, a lot of them, who had profound and complex needs. So these were children who may be 16 years old, but they'd be in a wheelchair, they wouldn't be able to move very much probably, they'd have no speech, and being emotionally at quite a young stage, these, these young, young folk. And um, we thought, well, what, what kind of music education are they getting? And we looked around for any research there might be, and it turned out there was none at all. A few music therapists had sort of stuck their toe in this water, but music education had completely ignored this group. And so I think a lot of the work we've done in the last 20 years has been putting that right. And we started a project, um, first of all, called Promise, which was the provision of music in special education. We sent a questionnaire around to special schools in, in the UK and um, said, what 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 sort of counts as music for these children? What provision do you make? What what training do your teachers have? And it was really identifying the gaps that that threw up. The main one being that everyone thought music was a good idea. No one knew what to do about it. And by the way, there wasn't any money. That all sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Um, so we, we, we determined to put that right. We started a project called Sounds of Intent with colleagues from across the special ed sector. And um, we essentially went to visit each other's classrooms. We, we watched videos together and said, well, what's, what's happening here? You know, does this engagement with music necessarily precede another type of engagement with music? And very gradually, over about five years, um, we started 
to see patterns in the way the children's musicality developed, these most complex children. And that was the beginning of what we call the Sounds of Intent framework, which you can find, find online. Um, and really that, that set out for the first time how, how these children develop musically. And it turns out how it seems that all children develop musically, typically at an earlier stage. And that thinking has, I think, um, inspired us to, to do a lot of projects since mm. in the field of visual impairment, hearing impairment, autism, um, early years. And really, I've, I suppose my interest in the last 10 years has been to take that research and to move it into the practical sphere of, say, what are we going to do about it? So working with a number of voluntary organisations that are set up in the UK, um, like the Amber Trust and Soundabout, um, and we both, <laughs> both work for a organisation called SEMPRE, the Society for Education, Music and Psychology Research. Um, we've actually championed the cause of these children. We've set up websites for their families. We've created resources. Um, we've set up schemes of home visits for families of blind babies, for example, so that we can give these children the best possible start. But the important thing is it's all based on our research. Um, and so hopefully it'll have the maximum impact because... Hopefully, we know what we're doing, yeah. more or less. It's, it's grounded in realities. It, it's uh, evidence-based. And at the same time, um, just because we're doing it, people in the special education sector got very interested in it. And can we share it? And can we have some of that? And how do we use it? And, and then we've had, because we've got students in our universities that come from all over the world, I said, well, uh, do you mind if we translate this into Croat or into... Uh, Portuguese or you know Catalan or Korean or you know and so suddenly it's appearing in lots of different uh, nationalities around the world I mean we came and did two presentations here over the last five years uh, to the special ed people uh, for their annual conference in uh, Washington and that sparked a particular interest from a, a person in Florida and he was has been linking and trying to support people working in special ed in Haiti. And so we've, we've been finding ways to work with both him and help him help them and them, and to enrich this knowledge, if you like, that, that we have about how, what counts as musical behaviour and how that might develop over time in an appropriately nurturing environment. And, and that, for us, is also part of the challenge, is understanding the context so yet musical behaviours will develop, but we find by looking at, if you like, a neurotypical or an ordinary, quotation marks, population, that there's a kind of level of musical competence that most people will have, that you might see in a bar or a party or a ball game or whatever, um, which is sufficient for you to engage with your friends or your peers or the local community but not necessarily that advanced, but socially acceptable. And you can probably get that through interaction with other people. However, if you have a particularly nurturing environment and you're curious and someone makes provision, then that can be even more developed and extended. Why might that be important? Well, because the people that research uh, the challenges of older age suggests that people that have had experience of music, their brains are changed when they're younger through this sustained activity, 
and it brings a lifelong enhancement, lifelong. So you can pick out the musicians of an older age because of their, their facilities, because of the way that they process, can still make sense of sound, their ability to perceive and use sound. So there are things to do with, with uh, music which are not just enriching in the moment, but have a much longer benefit. And that's, I suppose, been our journey together, looking at it from different but complementary ways, is how we can make sense of how we as humans make sense of these things called sound and the way that patterns of sound are organised and how they might be somehow not just a window into what it means to be human but how we might use that knowledge to develop and facilitate and empower people to give them more choices to enrich their lives. So you're both visiting here as visiting scholars and Madison Music Scholar recipients. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you're doing here at JMU this week? Yeah, we have um, a series of lectures. I think we've got eight lectures in two days. We're here now with you doing a podcast. We have various um, meetings with, with local educators lined up. I think we've got tea and cake coming up. That's very important. <laughs> um, and really coming alongside the student cohort and and it's been very interesting already we've only been here a few hours really chatting to some of the students some of whom themselves have special needs um i mean special needs is something that touches everyone you know everyone virtually i think these days knows someone who's on the autism spectrum for example has a relative and so i think it's really perhaps getting getting the students to look here with a fresh pair of eyes at some of the issues perhaps they just passed by before or hadn't really thought about in depth and how they in their own as they develop as, as young musicians and educators themselves how how they can perhaps think about designing their the way they work in a more inclusive way I think that's that's one of the main messages is that music above all is inclusive and that's a key message that we're we're trying to get across. And we're also in the best sense, as Jerome Bruner would say, we are senior learners. Yeah, We are here also to learn and to understand and to, to pick up from them their kind of comments and questions so that we can keep refining this and sharpening this, this particular journey that we're on. It's not that we have answers, because for me all knowledge is provisional. What we do have through experiences are some provisional answers that we're quite happy to share, to try out. But we're also aware that these are, although empirically based, with grounded in lots and lots of data, that in one sense they are still provisional because they're our perspective on something. And so just chatting over breakfast this morning to someone that's, that's, that's working in a, in a kind of school context, again you get examples of things, oh, well, ah, yes, oh, ah, that's interesting that we wouldn't, we may, may or may not know about, but it's not at the forefront of our minds. And just the questions that people ask us enable us to think and sharpen our ideas about how we might talk about the things that we're interested in. It seems like music is one of those universal ways to get people out of their bubbles and to get them interacting with each other. I think that's absolutely true. I do a lot of work with children on the autism spectrum, um, many of whom are non-verbal. 
And so a typical music lesson, I don't talk, what's the point? Um, it's Music is the language of the session. And in the last five or ten years, I've been doing a lot of work with children from overseas who come to the UK, including some from the States, but also others who, for example, from Russia, from Germany, from um, Sweden, who don't necessarily speak English. And I did think, and I don't speak Swedish, or I speak a little German and no Russian. So I did think, how how's this lesson going to work? And then, of course, it struck me that you don't need to talk. Just let music do the talking. And so the great thing is, um, any child anywhere in the world, uh, one can sit down with and even if it's just sharing a common clapping rhythm. I mean, there's music is there to bond everybody together. Um, and it's incredible, after only two or three days of working with a child with whom you've never shared a word of language, you feel this intimate friendship because you've shared musical jokes, you've, you've shared sad moments, you've improvised together, you've been on musical journeys together, often with these very little, very isolated children. And it's fantastic to see them come out into the world as someone else. And it's a huge privilege, I think, isn't mm. it, to, mm. to, um, for them to share their really innermost feelings and thoughts with you, which is what you get with music. But music is above all, I think it's been called a language of eternal play. You know, it's a safe space for children with cognitive disabilities, with emotional disabilities to to come out into and, and to share something. Music doesn't tell you off you know, for children with autism. It doesn't say, no, that's wrong, I'm right. It doesn't do any of those things. It just is. And by um, by respecting the children's musical contributions, hopefully they come to respect what you do. And it's a genuine meeting of minds. There's no reason to think a 60-year-old music professor has a better musical idea than a five-year-old mm -hmm. child with autism. In fact, they're probably more likely to have a more interesting <laughs> idea, to be honest. But it's great. It's just lovely. I think for the parents as well, very often their children are a mystery to them, these very, very autistic kids, and they, they don't understand what makes them tick. And then they see, see them engaging in a musical context, and suddenly they get it. And it's fantastic to see how the parent's relationship with the child also opens up when they realise, actually, there's a whole new language. Well, it's not it's a very old language, but it's a language that they hadn't thought of through which their child can be a fully functioning human being and a non-disabled human being. Perhaps in real life, a child with severe autism might have come across as being quite disabled. In the context of a music improvisation session, they it's probably me who's disabled and they are the able one because they can hear things and do things that I can't do. And so I think it... I love that turning of the tables, that Alice in the Looking Glass world, when, when the 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 child who in everyday life has no power and, and is very disabled actually becomes the leader in a music session. That is magic. It's giving them a sense of agency, and that has a very powerful pedagogical message as well. Years ago, uh, I was at a conference and I met uh, senior professor at uh, Florida State, Cliff Madsen. I said to Cliff, what do you do? He says, I count things. And by that he meant that he went into classrooms and he counted things. He had a counter. He had something beeping in his ear and he would count what was going on in the music lesson. And that, I realised this was a very simple but powerful tool, for example, saying how much of your music lesson is music? How much is talk? How much is unnecessary talk? And you suddenly realise when you start looking at it in terms of teacher effectiveness, effectiveness of a lesson, effectiveness of learning, that we often can waste a lot of time 
when we're working with children or trying to help children to learn by not actually dealing with music, with sound. As Adam says, with, with more neurodiverse populations that don't respond in that way, you have to be different. Some of the videos that we've got, uh, I was mentioning earlier today, with uh, ADHD young people who find it very difficult to focus and to concentrate. But the lessons that we've seen working are where, in the moment, the teacher responds and channels the conversation, always by allowing the young person to take a lead, to make a, a space where the young person can respond, but to use that response, not to have a kind of master-apprentice model of the world, in which you automatically create deficits because you have a model of what someone is meant to be like. And one of the challenges we've had in, in the kind of mainstream education for many years, particularly in music, uh, is that in the early years, a lot of early years research actually kind of celebrates what children are as opposed to what they ought to be. But in music education in the early years, there was a long tradition of seeing them as somehow disabled or uh, less abled adults and that you were trying to educate them, induct them into a whole form of knowledge. Nothing wrong in that, but the whole approach was that there were things that were right or wrong. And working with these young people, you don't get that, that sense. They will make a response. And what you find is that the people that are sensitive to that response use it to go somewhere else with, with the music. And they give these young people a, a voice, they give them a sense of agency, they give them a sense of self, which is, as Adam says, it's both humbling and, and enriching, not least because of the implications it has for everybody else. If children with so-called disability can respond like this, are we missing an opportunity with those that, quotation marks, don't have a disability? How might we be more effective in general terms? I think one of the one of the um, philosophical things we've sort of changed is that in times past, children with special needs or disabilities were seen almost as an annoying adjunct to the mainstream. Certainly government policy does. Yeah. You know, you've got the, main, the majority and then you've got these ones that don't quite fit and what we're going to do with them. I think what the conclusion we've come to, along with many others, is that actually by addressing first the more extremes of the neurodiversity that's natural in us, you actually do a much better job for the majority. And actually treating um, children with severe autism first, not, not last in the, in the line, but first in the line, let's get them sorted out, actually makes you a much better teacher and a much better curriculum for all children. Because you have to be child-centered, you, be, you have to think more strategically about where you're going in the longer term. And you know what? Autistic children just don't take any crap, basically. Um, um, neurotypical children tend to be quite compliant. They will put up with a heck of a lot of rubbish, you know, really, that goes on in their lives. An autistic child will just say it as it is if they can talk, or, or if they can't, they'll just walk off. You know, if you feel boring, they'll just go. So you, you need to be a much better teacher. And I think that's, that's a lesson that certainly I've learned, is I think I'm a much better working with all children now because I've had to work with those that demand the best and they demand the best because in a way they're so able despite yeah. being disabled and it's a common it's a common kind of 
policy misconception. Well, two of them. First of all is that the arts are somehow marginal and that they're somehow less central. Yet, in all the education establishments that we go in, in the, in the UK, which are highly expensive, private fee-paid, you would never find one that didn't have a very advanced art department or a music department, lots of opportunities to learn, instruments, choirs, orchestras. It's what parents who are paying fees for their kids' education expect, as well as all the science and the sport and everything else. And it's the same thing, I think, that when we visit universities in the States. There are, such as this one, thriving music departments, irrespective of all the other stuff that's going on. And yet, at the same time, when we had our first national curriculum being designed and talked about in 1988, and the first iteration of that came out, first of all, that there were some subjects seen as much more central core, you know, such as English and mathematics, and music kind of tagged along slightly later. And then when Adam and I said, is there a music curriculum for uh, children and young people with special education? Uh, we hadn't thought of that. Um, perhaps we ought to do one. And then they created one, which paradoxically, which we, we found great humour in, um, because it was structured in a sequence, in a hierarchy. Start with this, then this, then this, then this. That if you turn the sequence upside down, it made exactly the same sense. And it wasn't we couldn't find out who created it, because like most of these things, they're, they're designed by a civil servant and a committee in a secret room somewhere, you know, and it just emerges as policy. We, it, it was not based in any uh, empirical evidence or data at all. We had no idea, which is one of the motivations for us jointly to start doing this kind of research. Scadam said it was just an enormous gap. It was a policy gap as, as well as a pedagogical gap. But it was special education was just bolted on. I think we see special ed as the research part, really, the furnace. You know, the smelting all these ideas. And I think when you think of it like that, I was up in, um, in San Diego a couple of years ago at the Anthropogeny Centre, and they were saying how neurodiversity has moved from being an outside thing that you have to put up with to something that you reluctantly celebrate because people have got abilities. Now putting it centre stage and saying, this is actually the future. Neurodiversity is the future. With things like artificial intelligence coming along, what's, what role are human beings going to have? We're going to need people that think out of the box, that think differently. And actually by putting the most neurodiverse people at the centre of, of university thinking, for example, and development and research, that's probably the future. That's amazing. So unfortunately, we're running out of time, but I'd like to ask one more question. So you've said that voice is your primary instrument of choice. Do you have another one? And what is your primary instrument? Yeah, I'm a, a keyboard player, a piano player. And I always say, you know, if I'd been thinking about designing something that would give autistic children pleasure, it would be a piano keyboard. <laughs> because... It's black and white, which autistic children tend to like. It's, it's symmetrical, but in a complicated way, because there are groups of notes, three and two. It's got lots of parallel lines, which they like. And best of all, whenever I go get up in the morning and go downstairs and play a note on my piano, it's always the same. When I say hi to my mom or my dad, it's always different. Because I say, yeah, hi, how are you? Or oh, you're a bit late this morning. Or What's, what are you having for breakfast? Whereas the piano, I play A, and it sounds like A. 
better than that, I go to school and I play A and it sounds like A. I come to the States, I play A and it sounds like A. And so there's something orderly and consistent uh, and absolutely reliable about the piano that I think autistic children instinctively take to. Also, you can play very, very simple things on it, or you can play the most complicated music. You can play 10 notes at once if you want to. So it's, it's ideal for differentiation. If you want to do something very simple, that's fine. You can just do a rhythm. If you want to do the most complicated music, you can do that as well. So I agree with Graham, voices first. I always get children to sing and to use their voices. But then to think of that, the, the sound we all have within us and how does that relate to an instrument and the keyboard is the one I go for. The voice, for me, is part of who you are. It's part of your identity. And if we can work with your voice, we expand your idea of what your identity is. If you're depressed and we get you to use your voice and develop your voice, you will feel less depressed after doing that. I'm not saying this won't happen with other instruments, but because you carry your voice with you, it's very easy for your voice to both reflect your inner world, but also to shape it. So I'm not feeling that bright today. My voice oh, is not very bright. Oh, therefore I don't. And I, it's a negative circle which can be broken. Everybody's got that, that instrument and it's, it's diversity forces you pedagogically to, to explore that lack of consistency is something that you need to use as a virtue. Say, well, what are the boundaries? How might I use my voice in lots of different ways? Then, when I want to communicate, I have a choice. So some of the voice work that we've done over the years, we've been working with business people. We've been working with your National Centre for Voice and Speech here has been working with people uh, in telesales, for example, or people that are lawyers or people that are CEOs of big companies whose voice is a tool of trade in communicating. And we find that, for example, giving singing lessons to these people gives them more power over their voice, which makes them better at the world of work and gives them a more sense of power of who they are. And with kids, it's exactly the same. That we don't just want them to read, we want them to read with expression. We want them to articulate, ask questions, for their language to become more complex and not to single one-word answers in terms of their ability to communicate, understand, think outside whatever this box is, not to parrot the correct answer. So there are each of us for different historical reasons of brought different instruments, if you like, to this to this world uh, of research. And both of them are fascinating. Both of them, I think, uh, overlap and just demonstrate how extraordinary the world of music can be and is. Thank you so much for joining me today. Pleasure. A real pleasure. Yes. Thank you for inviting us. We're, we're <laughs> delighted to be here. I'm glad. And to see some sunshine. <laughs> yes. And thank you to our listeners for joining us today for Conversations at the Cohen Center. Thank you for listening to Conversations at the Cohen Center. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at, at JMU Cohen Center. If you'd like to get in touch, email us at cohencenter at jmu.edu. Our intro and outro music come from Phase 3 by Zylo Zico. You can find out more about them at freemusicarchive.org. <laughs>